0: Well, how's it to everyone in the room and everyone online? I wonder how many people would Yes like no I wonder how many people would put up their hand and say Zechariah is my favorite book in the Bible. <laughs> From the silence, I don't think many of us know too much about Zechariah. But we I feel very convinced about these minor prophets that we're preaching through this year. I feel very convinced God is gonna speak to us through this. And very important is this prophet Zechariah. His name means God remembers. And that is a very important point for today in the sermon. If you're taking notes, which gets you to heaven faster, it's a scientific fact. Um, you're taking notes, that's going to be one that you're going to want to underline. Um, and Zechariah, he was a priest by birth, but he was a prophet by gifting. God spoke to this man through dreams and visions. God still speaks to people today through dreams and visions. Dreams ofs is when you're asleep. But when God shows you a picture when you're awake, that's a vision. And God spoke to Zechariah this way. And these visions that he gets are so important that God records them here, a series of prophetic dramas in his book of Zechariah. And the fact of the matter is these prophetic dramas take you through events that happened in Israel at that time and are speaking to that as well as to events that would still take place. These prophetic visions have significance for the time and they've got significance for us today. And God saw fit to show Zechariah all the way to the end of time. And we call that kind of writing in the Bible apocalyptic writing. You might be familiar with it, second half of Daniel, Ezekiel, Book of Revelation. This is a very weird genre of the Bible to read, mensa. This is where you get flying scrolls, animals with 20 eyes, uh, every other every, angel is coming out of the woodwork. It can be quite difficult for us to interpret. I think you can agree with me, like this can be a bit tricky. But the fact of the matter is every word of the Bible is breathed out by the Holy Spirit and is profitable for us today. And so this isn't something to dodge, especially because if we want to worship the full Jesus, the whole Jesus, we're gonna need the full breadth of Scripture. And there's something about the portrait of Jesus as the lion who rises up in these passages of apocalyptic writing that we desperately need. And even as good as his visions were, the people of the day didn't receive it well. Almost every Old Testament prophet was murdered by the people because of the message that they shared. Zechariah, no different. Near the temple where he served all of his life, murdered by the people that he was serving. But God remembers and his prophecies are held here and recounted in the New Testament. By one estimate, about 67 times his verses are quoted or echoed. This is a big boy in prophetic. And his, his references are mostly in the Gospels and in the book of Revelation. The reason for that is that Zechariah's message is that God's kingdom is coming down. At that time when they were a city in ruins and the prophet Haggai was saying, guys, we need to rebuild this place of Jerusalem. God spoke to Zechariah in visions and He said, Zechariah, there will be a day that I myself will come and I will make a new Jerusalem for my kingdom is coming. And that is the context of this incredible vision in Zechariah chapter 2. So why don't you turn there um, in your devices, or in your Bibles. It'll come up behind me. Zechariah chapter 2, it's called the man with a measuring line, a vision from God. It says, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and its length. And behold, an angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run and say to that young man that Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell in the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after His glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. Because He who touches you... Such the apple of His eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come. And I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. So be silent, all flesh before the Lord for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. It's a powerful vision and I see three things in it for our three points for today. A city with no walls, A love with no limits and a promise no one expected. A city with no walls, a love with no limits, and a promise no one expected. Now, the first most basic thing is the city with no walls. Now, the basic premise of this whole thing is that a dude is going to survey the dimensions of Jerusalem. We see that in verse 2. Where are you going, dude? To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. You see, it was a city in ruins. And this rebuilding process and this surveying was about to be the dawn of a new hope for these people. It was about to stand for the new thing that God is going to do for this destroyed nation. Yet we see this surprising turn of events in verse 4. Run and say to that surveyor guy that Jerusalem shall be inhabited as a village without walls. Strange, because in that day, the only reason a city wouldn't have walls is because it's a city in ruins. To not have walls is to leave yourself open to plunder. It's almost like living in like downtown Josie and not even having a front door and anybody could come in. You would want to secure that property. The only reason you wouldn't have walls is bad news. And in that time, Jerusalem was a city with no walls because they'd been destroyed by Babylon, the superpower. They have a scorched earth policy. They leave nothing when they leave and they completely destroyed all of Jerusalem and they took those Israelites into captivity. And they tried to assimilate them to Babylonian culture. That's one way that you can eliminate a culture is by taking them captive and teaching them to forget their own culture. It's a very violent, subversive way to destroy a people. And when they returned one day, as God had promised, because he remembers, when they had returned on that day, they returned to a city that had no walls. That once again, they were open to plunder. Anyone could walk in there. They were defenseless. But what happens here is that God is about to turn that image of desperate hopelessness. And He's about to make it an image of hope. Because God says, yes indeed, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls. But for these amazing reasons. Because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. Not only that. Never mind walls, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. There will come a day, Jerusalem, where your confidence and security and hope will not rest in the thickness of the walls that you have constructed because there will come a day when you don't require walls whatsoever because I will be a wall of fire all around you, declares the Lord. The lack of walls, which once was an image of, That meant weakness. God is going to flip into total strength. In God's weakness, His perfection comes out. His power is made perfect in our weakness. God really is after being a supernaturally secure city, supernatural abundance, a ring of fire keeping the inhabitants safe, destroying all enemies, declares the Lord. That word declares the Lord, Naum Hashem means God is making a promise. And when God makes a promise, that promise comes to pass because the Lord remembers. And there will be this wall of fire. In fact, the walls need to come down. I mean, the walls are a hindrance to the prosperity God wants to bring to the city because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. The the walls are not going to help because you can't contain the fullness of life, the fullness of hope, the fullness of abundance that God has for this city. The walls actually, if anything, need to come down in order for God to do the thing which He purposes. As I was preaching that, I was thinking about my own life and it was dawning on me. I don't know in which area you feel insecure, out of control, totally anxious. Where do you feel like a city without walls? Where do you feel tempted that you need to try and protect yourself? I wonder if this part of Zechariah is getting through like it was getting through to me during the week, that no amount of building can actually make us secure. If anything, the walls need to come down in order for God to be our strength. What if the love of God was so vivid to me and to you that it was a wall of fire? All around us. What if we were leaning in totally on God to bring us that security? That there's no need to build, there's no need to hide or try and cover ourselves up. Because God says surrender to me and I will be a wall of fire all around. There's an exchange that happens with Jesus. The fact that He left security. He left the riches of heaven. In order to be born as a fragile, vulnerable baby that could be dropped on the ground. And he was wounded, he was trampled on, he came into the ruins of our lives, of our mess, and was destroyed, plundered, so that through Jesus we can be restored supernaturally. So that through Jesus we find us in this place where we're wrapped in the arms of love, surrounded by a ring of fire, declares the Lord. It's an awesome promise. And it's very spiritual what I just said, but I had a more silly question a more down-to-earth question really it was this detail that says because of the multitude of people and livestock in it now this is very strange man because this is a picture of the new jerusalem man. god has come down he's the glory in their midst this is speaking to that second coming era and yet what we do see is lots of cows in heaven now This got me on such a tangent, guys. I was in the office saying, Dunks, did you know about the many cows that will be in heaven? And as Laura walked in the office, are you aware of the multitude of goats that will be there on that day? Um, This really got me on such a tangent. Apparently, if anyone here works in the dairy industry, you've made a long-term investment. A very long-term investment. You're thinking ahead like Sun Lum there. Um, But... You know, you've heard the debate about dogs and cats in heaven, but I say unto you, there will be herdable animals in heaven. So I think we should actually exchange those cats and dogs for goats. It's probably a better move because they get through the pearly gates. I don't know why they get the the nod, but God's like, that's right, bring the goat. Um, So I go and I pray to God, I'm like, Lord, pardon me. I know you've got more important things on your plate, but I would like to inquire regarding these livestock in heaven. And God leads me to this commentary. It says that in that day when they had no temple, the thing that the people of Israel longed for was for there to be a temple again so that they could sacrifice and show an offering to their God to show them, You have done this great thing for us. What can we do to show you how much we love you? They wanted to have this offering. They really desire to worship God. This picture in the scripture of the multitude of livestock is that there's a multitude of people in this day who will be in the new Jerusalem and there will be a big sense of worshiping God with all that we have. It's a city of worship because the king of Zion is there. We read that in verse seven. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell in the daughter of Babylon. That word up is a device in the minor prophets that says pay attention, up, Pay attention. God is about to say something important. And He says, all of you guys that are coining it in the greater Babylonian region and you haven't come back to Jerusalem, come back home come back to God's city because God's holy city Jerusalem remains the capital of God's plans for this world. It's not going to be New York, London, Moscow or whatever superpowers are coming in the future. What God's going to be doing in the future of this earth is going to revolve around the royal city of Jerusalem, of Zion. There's a word that we see here, escape to Zion, You who dwell in the daughter of Babylon. We're not too sure about that word except we know about Zionists. But this is what Zion actually means. It refers to the kingdom of God and His heavenly city. So he is speaking here to a people that have a kingdom hope and that believe in the fulfillment of prophetic truth uttered by God. That people that agree and put their stamp that God remembers what He says comes to pass. Come back to Zion because I have plans for this city. Because when God says something, He remembers it comes to pass. And so we have a sure hope and an expectation that even us people who've never even been to Jerusalem, one day we will be in the new Jerusalem in a city with no walls, with absolute worship, with a wall of fire all around. That's the first thing we see in this vision. The second thing I see is a love with no limits. Verse 8 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you, God's child, for he who touches you, touches the apple of his eye. Now that's a strange phrase in English. I don't know who came up with it. It would be an apple of an eye. But um, even in, as I was reading it, I was like, are you expecting me to believe that in ancient Hebrew, in the Middle Eastern ancient Hebrew, they used the expression apple of my eye? So I went and I looked it up in the Hebrew, and the experts say you could render the sentence, the opening of my eye, the pupil of my eye. That would make the sentence, whoever touches you, God's child, is touching the opening of my eye. What's the interpretation? If anyone lays a finger on you and wounds you, God Himself is wounded. This is a love with no limits. The fact is when you are suffering, God says, I am wounded in my most vulnerable place when you're hurting. He jealously watches over people's conduct towards you because when you hurt, He's hurt Himself. You are His most dear and tender part. Isn't that crazy to think about the all-powerful eternal God is hurt by things that are happening to us. Reformer John Calvin says, since they this is us mensa since they bear the image of god engraven on them he deems himself violated in their person this means no one can be injurious to his brother without wounding god himself it also means when you wounded god feels that pain he's a heavenly father he can't watch his kids go on hurting without feeling hurt himself if you are in that place where you say, I'm not convinced God loves me, or I am convinced God loves me, but not a lot. This scripture is telling us you have no idea because this is a love without limits. He gets hurt when we get hurt. And verse eight and nine tells us those nations that have been hurting Israel, that he's been personally God afflicted by that suffering. And he says that there will be judgment upon those nations because you can't have a God of love who isn't a God of justice. It's empty words to hear about a God of love who will not set things right, who will not set right justice and make the oppressors taste what they have done. He doesn't care for the vulnerable if he's not a God of justice. So verse eight and nine tells us, because he's a God of love, there will be a reckoning for the people who have been oppressing God's people But here's the plot twist. This is why it's a love beyond limits like 2.0. Because there's a huge plot twist in verse 11, which says, Sing and rejoice and be glad. Why? Because many nations shall join themselves to the Lord on that day, and they shall be my people. This is crazy, because those same nations that plundered and pillaged and raped Israel are going to be the ones that are joined to the Lord on that day. So what we see is a love of God that isn't just for the innocent sufferer but is also for the guilty oppressor. This is a love without limits that it won't just heal the innocent sufferer but will turn the hearts of the guilty oppressor towards God. That is very good news for people like me who are not innocent. But how will God simultaneously do these two things? How will He simultaneously offer justice to the oppressed And simultaneously offer forgiveness to the guilty. It says in verse 10 that God must come down. That for people guilty like myself, salvation can't be found within us. We can't be woke and enlightened and now saved. But salvation must come from an outside source. and must come down. And it's going to cost. Because for God to create the world cost him nothing. For God to destroy the world would cost him nothing. But for God to forgive the guilty costs him everything. And so God comes down Himself, Jesus, the beloved, the only beloved Son of the Father, the apple of the Father's eye, the one that when Jesus is heard, God says, I feel that in my own heart. And God sends His own Son to the wolves, to the guilty oppressors, at their filthy hands, His own Son would die. That Jesus would lay my guilt, your guilt and everybody's guilt upon His own Son, So that there can be forgiveness for the guilty oppressor. That's how God is in one. A God of justice and a God of love. It's a love that goes beyond all limits. And there's forgiveness in Jesus because God remembers. And He makes a promise and He comes good. But the third thing we see, and this is where we see God is going to set things right, is a promise that nobody expected. Twofold. The first way, the promise that I see here that no one expected is this matter about every nation. He says, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord on that day and they will be my people. Now this thing is very surprising if you're Jewish because God chose the Jewish people out of the nations. God chose one nation through Abraham, out of the nations, the rest discarded, one chosen. But God also said, that through that one nation, all nations would be blessed. God has chosen through electing one nation that all nations would be reached by the good news about Jesus. And this is God's plan from the start, from Genesis to Revelation. He promised that every tribe, every nation, every tongue will be worshiping the Lord at the throne in the book of Revelation. He's always had a heart for all nations. I wonder if you have a heart for all nations or is it sufficient that God saved you and he's made my life better I'll sit at home I'll come to church and I'll live my life on autopilot because God's done a good thing for me that's enough for me or is it the case that our heart burns for the things that God's heart burns for is it the case that God has changed us that we can't sit by and watch how nations don't even know Jesus have never even heard about Jesus because God is a God of all the nations I wonder if like you, you might just turn on the Joshua Project website and just have a look at the multitudes of people that have never even had a missionary come to them. Let alone the, ch- the countries that don't have a single church or where there are no missionaries operating. This world is full of people that God made, that He loved. He knitted them together in, His mother's wo- in their mother's womb. He has plans and destinies that He has for them, but they've never heard of Jesus Christ. I wonder if our heart gets stirred for that. Should we not pray for these nations? Should we not pray that God melts our heart, that we care about the things that God cares about? Let's pray even now in this gathering. Lord, we pray that every knee would bow and every tongue confess in every nation that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, you said you are the Lord of all the nations, not just some nations. Lord we pray let your gospel sweep through all those nations. Lord we're praying for every unreached people group, man, woman that you have died to save. You bled on the cross for them. Lord I'm praying that you stir up missionaries to get up out of church seats and go to these unreached people groups. Lord I'm praying that you will stir up the laborers because the laborers are few to go into the harvest of the persecuted nations that those places where there's bloodshed for christians that people will say that's my place where i need to go lord i'm praying for strong churches in persecuted nations I'm pray, praying for churches, strong pastors in Russia, in China, in unreached people groups as well. Lord, we're praying for that. also pray for Thailand right now, that wonderful country that you made, Lord. I'm praying for those people to be swept up by the good news of Jesus. Just like their neighbours, the Philippines, where they had a revival, do it again. In Thailand, we pray. And Lord, do it with all of those Pacific islands. We are putting them before you today on the map. We say, Lord, have your way and make those islands a launching pad to save the whole Pacific Rim of Asia. Let that be your new hub, Lord. Let that be where Christians pump out. Let that be where people find Jesus and get to know Jesus. Let it be, that's the story of Asia. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. That's the one thing that's unexpected that God promised every nation. But not just that, he also promised one king. He says, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come. The I is Jesus Christ. And he ascended to heaven, but he's coming again. And he said, I am the king of Zion. What is Zion? It's the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem. One day it will be on earth exactly as it is in heaven because the king Shall return. But not the king they expected. They're expecting a son, a king like the son of David, a human king. But the one who's descending is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, the I am is coming. So all of creation, all of the earth make straight a highway, a path for the Lord, because Jesus is coming soon. And he will be the glory in our midst. Verse 5: I will be the glory. In your midst. Revelation 21 says, The city has no need for a sun or a moon to shine on it because the glory of God Himself will give it light. It's the lamp of the Lamb. As Charles Spurgeon says, That Jerusalem shall become the metropolis of a new empire, which shall then extend from pole to pole, from the river even to the ends of the earth, the kingdom which is soon to cover all lands and make the sun and the moon ashamed by its superior glory, because the king will have his day. It says, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day. If you see that in the prophetic books, underline it. That day is the Lord's day. There's every other arbitrary bloody day, and then there's that day, which is the king's day. It's a decisive day, only God knows when it is, when Jesus Christ will come again. And there will be judgment upon every evil. And there will be restoration for all of the broken. And we will see God remembers every promise that He has made. Verse 12 says that the Lord will inherit Judah as His portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. We will see God keeps His covenants and everything He says comes to pass because the Lord remembers. But the question is, are you living today in anticipation of that day? Because one day will be the last today and then it will be that day. The world likes to tell us that we need to live each day like it's our last. But the Bible says live each day in preparation for the last. Because one day will be the last today and then it will be that day. We will all be called to account. So call back the sinner. Wake up the saint. Let every nation shout of your fame. Because Jesus is coming soon. It's a glorious day. It says in Revelation chapter 21, there will be a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. It says, I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And it says this, God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. For the former things have been passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God said it and God remembers. So verse 13 says, Be silent. All flesh before the Lord, for He has roused Himself from His holy dwelling. The commentators say that word roused is like the rising of a warrior. That on that day, every doubt towards God will be silenced. And on that day, every injustice will be dealt with. For behold, the Lord Jesus comes riding on a white horse. And His name is faithful and true. His eyes, it says, will be flames of fire. And out of His mouth comes a sword with which He strikes down the wickedness of the nations. And on His robe and on His thigh is written the name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That in that day, every knee on earth and in heaven and under the earth will bow to the majesty of Jesus. And all people will confess that Jesus Christ, He is the Lord and there will be justice and all will be new, your name forever faithful and true, because Jesus is coming soon. God said it and God remembers it's gonna happen and God's attributes demand that it shall happen because God is faithful. His purposes are unfailing and His plans are unassailable and His word is unquestionable and His plans are always unwavering. But God is also powerful to deliver on His promises because His riches are unfathomable and His glory is uncontainable. His might is unchallengeable and His power is immeasurable. And God never changes His mind because the Lord never changes. He is dependable because His plans are unchangeable. So when God says He's going to do something, He's unchanging, He's faithful, and He's powerful enough to deliver on it. So what is our response? That like a bride waiting for our groom, that we'll be a church ready for you. Every heart longing for our King, we sing, even so come, 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 come Lord Jesus, come, 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 come Lord Jesus, come. Will you stand with me, let's get into worship. God has promised us a city with no walls, a love with no limits and a promise that no one expected that every nation would worship one King in the new Jerusalem so i end with this doxology to him who is the blessed and only sovereign to the king of zion the lord of lords to the king of ages immortal the only god to him be blessing to him be honor to him be majesty to him be glory to him be might and to him be eternal dominion forever and ever amen let's sing